Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Central Wired podcast, and thanks for listening in. Make sure to stay connected with us throughout the week at centralwired.com or on Facebook and Instagram. We hope this week's message meets you right where you're at. Enjoy. Hey! Right back at you. You guys are awesome. I thank God for you. If you're with us for the first time or the first time in a long time, we're delighted to have you with us. Those who are with us online, we love you guys. Um, Hope that your next step is to join us uh, right here in this room uh, to worship and celebrate the goodness of our God. If you are newer here, you've caught us going through uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, all the way from Genesis uh, to Revelation. And today we're ready for a story that's not in the Jesus Storybook Bible, kind of filling in a gap. It's a story of an underdog. Now, you know what an underdog is. Let me show you, just put us all on the same page. An underdog is a little-known person, unlikely to succeed, but who ultimately does great things. And I love underdog stories. I love Rocky, Rambo, Rudy, Gladiator, Braveheart. I love to be captured by this moment, someone who has nothing, a nobody from nowhere who achieves greatly. The underdog becomes the top dog. And the story this week is on Esther. She, her story is God breathed in the word of God. But God's name is nowhere in her story. It's like you're flipping page to page. You're looking uh, for some sign, some evidence A mention of God's name, there is none. But just because God is hidden does not mean that God is absent. Same is true for you. If you're going through a hard time, if your heart is broken and you feel like, where is God in this? Just because you can't see him, just because you can't feel him, you got to know this, you got to be confident of this, you got to feed your courage with this. He is actively at work to your good. He is making everything beautiful in its time. And that's Esther's story. And what I want you to come to see is I tell you her story, I want you to see the God's fingerprints of favor all over your life that if you are willing to surrender your life to Jesus and place your life under his nail-pierced hands, that he presses in and leaves such an imprint on you, the evidence of his presence and his power and his love and his grace are the fingerprints of favor that he leaves all over your life. So let me tell you, Esther's story, and I'm going to use, there's a number of characters in this story, and to help you keep everyone straight, I'll use emojis, and here's Esther's emoji. She is one hot babe. She starts out, uh, first memory probably uh, in her mind bank is somebody kicking, bam, in the door of their home, charging in, taking her family by force, dragging them out of their home, forcing them into exile in a foreign land where people speak a different language, have different customs, a different culture. And it was a rigorous, rigorous journey. Now on that journey, um, her immediate household was her mom and dad and her older cousin, probably as old as her parents, um, and her mom and dad die on the way. And... um, her older cousin adopts her. 
She's an, Esther is orphaned. And instead of leaving her vulnerable to sex trade, to starvation, he adopts her, takes her in as his own. Now this story, this is the wildest story. When you go home, you got to sit down, open up the book of Esther and read it. Read every chapter because it is one wild story. Has this wild party, um, a beer fest, nudity, it's rated R, murder, deceit, conspiracy, and a surprise ending. And so it's kind of like a Netflix uh, series. And so I'm going to break it up into episodes, yeah? Um, The Great Gadsby, the king of the Persian Empire, most powerful empire in the world. So the king, King Xerxes, I think I have an emoji for him. He is the most powerful man on the planet. And we catch in the opening pages of Esther's story, he is throwing this wild party, a party that lasts 180 days. I didn't know there was that much guacamole in the world. (laughs) A six-month party. And as soon as the six-month party is over, day 180 is finished, he launches a one-week beer fest. It's a one-week Hager, open bar, as much as you can drink, whenever you can drink. And here's what the Bible says. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling high, half drunk, he calls for his wife, his queen, I have an emoji for her, Vashti, and he asked her to appear in front of him and all the men at his party wearing her royal crown and only her royal crown. And she responds, oh, king, blow it out your ear. (laughs) And he blows her away. She's dead meat, toast, six foot under, kicked the bucket, bought the farm. She's dead. Four years later, well, just to show you what was going on in his heart, here's what the Bible says. He had wanted all the men to gaze on her beauty for she was a very beautiful woman. I mean, he's the most powerful man in the empire. The empire, the United States has 50 states. This empire had 127 provinces. He's the most powerful man. And so he gets the most beautiful woman to be his wife, his queen. And here's a lesson I think we all can learn from this story. Decisions made while plastered. The, Greek, the Hebrew word there is hammered. Usually make matters worse. If you're half drunk, make no important life decisions. Um, And so what happens, four years later, he's like wandering around the palace. Where is my Vashti? Oh, my Vashti. I miss my Vashti. And his closest advisors advisors huddle together, brainstorm, because they know this king is psycho. And if he gets in a bad mood, somebody's going to die. And so they come up with a plan. They say, oh, king, we've got an answer to your loneliness. Why don't we throw a beauty contest? Send out soldiers, scour all 127 provinces. Let's bring in to the palace, to your harem, 127 of the most beautiful virgins, the youngest, the most lovely and attractive. Now, does this sound like a plan men are going to come up with? But the king... He found this advice very appealing, and so he followed it. And so for the second time, 
Second time, Esther finds herself torn from the arms of family. This time it's not mom and dad. This time it's her adoptive dad, Mordecai. And just as she's at, could I have one more word with my daughter? And before she goes, he takes her in his arms and he says, don't let anyone know you're a Jew. Don't breathe a word to anyone that we are cousins. You got to keep it under wraps. And then bam, they take her off. She didn't want to go. She didn't give a rip about the capital. She didn't want to be in any beauty contest. But against her will, kicking and screaming, she is hauled off to the capital. And Mordecai follows. And he camps out. Wherever she is, that's where he stays this particular time at the gates to the harem. So he can be close to her. So he can offer some kind of protection. And that is how scene one closes, episode one. And episode two, um, maybe think of The Bachelor. (laughs) The king and 127 young women. Except differing from the bachelor, these are all virgins. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I hope that doesn't get back to anybody in Hollywood <laughs> who have a constant eye on Beloit. <laughs> so, anyway, Esther, she's one of the young women, one of the beautiful young women. Um, But none of these young women, not one of the 127, get to meet the king. Not for a whole year. Because for a whole year, they've got to go through beauty treatments. It's like a Mary Kay party that won't end. (laughs) Mordecai, this is Mordecai. uh, Her cousin, he looks like a nerd. But he's keeping track of her. Here's the big deal. Esther was smoking hot. And we know that from the word of God. The Bible says the the girl had a good figure and a beautiful face. You see, anytime in the Hebrew, two descriptives are coupled together. It's called a couplet. It means that they are intensely multiplied in their description. So she is really, really, she's the most beautiful girl of all the 127 girls. She has surrendered, though we don't see God's name, she has surrendered her life to the hands of God and his fingerprints of favor are evidenced all over her life because she starts to find God's favor Just look at the text. There's a keeper of the women, guy in charge of the harem, Haggai, the keeper of the women. He was very, something about her stood out. There's 127 women. And this one is remarkable. It's more than what she looks like. There's something about her that is undeniable. Very impressed with Esther. And she won favor. Say favor. She won favor before him. I'm telling you the story because I want you to live under the favor of God. I mean, can you imagine your life with the favor of God's fingerprints all over it? Can can you imagine your, your financial situation if God's fingerprints of favor are constantly resting on your money? 
Can you imagine your relationships with the, with the fingerprints of God's favor all over your family and all over your friendships? Can you imagine how you'll feel and how you'll think with the fingerprints of God's favor all over your mind and heart? That's Esther. She finds favor. She won favor before him. He singles her out, 127 women to have beauty treatments, and he puts her first in line. He singled her out to be first for the beauty treatments. Puts her first in line. She's a nobody from nowhere. Puts her first in line. You ever felt like a nobody from nowhere with nothing? Always last in line, always not good enough, always never picked? I'm glad God brought you here today. Because when you have his favor on your life, you just keep finding yourself first in line. First in line. And she gets special food. The Hebrew means spam. He gave her seven handmaids and put her in the best room in the harem. So that's number one. Haggai, keeper of the women, sees her. She's the best. Give her seven handmaids. Give her special food. Put her in the best room. Here's number two. Now, you know that the number three is a big deal number in the Bible. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here's number two. Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Everyone who saw her, she won their hearts. Everyone who saw her gave her favor. This is what happens in our lives. In fact, I pray this for my life every day, that God will give me favor with everyone I meet. I pray it for you. I pray it for our church, the favor of God. But here's number three and the close of episode two. The king loved her on sight. He had seen who knows how many lovely women, but when he sees Esther, oh my gosh, something about her. He loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor before him and he put the royal crown on her head and made her queen. Do you, do you see how favor escalates in her life? When, when you allow, when you live your life surrendered under the nail-pierced hands of Jesus, his favor flows and it increases in amount and intensity. She won favor with Haggai, the keeper of the women. She got favor from everyone who saw her and then she gets grace and favor from the king. Now, we're gonna go on to episode free. But before we do, there's a pattern at work in her life that's at work in my life and at work in your life. You see, on the surface of the story, we see the characters, Mordecai, Esther, Vashti, short-lived, and King Xerxes. But under the surface is another story going on. Same is true of you and me. Underneath the story of our story is the story of two characters, God and Satan. And I want you to understand how he moves, and I pray this for you on a regular basis, that if Satan makes any move against your life, that God will countermove in such a way as to give you glory and victory that will bring honor to his name. Because you see, Satan moves on all of us. Satan made a move on Esther, dragged out of her home, out of her country. I don't know if her mom and dad were beaten to death by the soldiers. I don't know if they died with some disease. I don't know if they died from the difficult journey. We just know that she was orphaned. And then God moves. And God puts on Mordecai's heart to make her his own. I know how that feels. 15, 16, 17 years ago, there was a little boy in Haiti, about 10 years old. He won favor with my wife. 
not me. I was willing to uh, clothe Wilkie, make sure he got an education down in Haiti, um, but I did not want to adopt him. But then came the day when we found out that he had broken his femur, left femur, and I went down on my knees in my living room and put my face in our couch, found about a buck and a half and change. No, I began to pray, and God told me unmistakably, make that boy your son. And immediately, I loved Wilkie like I loved my biological boys, Josh and Jake. Five years later, there was a little girl in an orphanage in Tabar, Haiti. God did the same thing. When we had decided to adopt Lovia, God brought out a love in me for her that was this, as if she was born right into our family. That's what went on with Mordecai. That's the kind of adoptive dad she got. Satan moved, but then God moved, and God moved. Satan moves. Could I have that back up again? But God defeats him every time. Satan makes a move, and God makes winning counter move after winning counter move. Satan keeps moving. That's what he's going to do in this story. But God defeats him every time, winning victory after victory for his people. How the, the, good, the, the big question is, how do I get to be one of his people? Will you surrender your life under the nail-pierced hands of Jesus? Under the umbrella of his favor, God is able to win victory after victory, every kind of victory for you in your life. You see, the third episode of this series, I'm calling Resident Evil. And there's Esther with a machine gun. Not kidding. I've never seen this movie. Haven't seen any of the sequels, but the title fits with what happens now in the story. Esther is not the only one close to the king in the palace. His right-hand man, his prime minister over all of Persia, all the 127 provinces is a man named Haman, and Haman is the worst of the worst. He is a racist. He hates the Jewish people, wants to see them all dead, all exterminated. He's an egomaniac, only and always thinks of himself. And he is so in love with himself and his power as the number two guy in the empire that he wants everyone who sees him to bow down on their knees, face to the ground, to honor him. And everyone does, because this is one scary, creepy, vindictive dude. And everybody bows to Haman, but Mordecai. Mordecai ain't bowing. That's Haman, he's got green hair. Now, if you come to church in green hair, I don't think you're evil, I think you're all good and probably rather beautiful and creative. But Haman, this is a sign that he is ugly to the max. Mordecai would not bow to him. Mordecai would only bow to the one true and living God, which absolutely infuriated. He went, Haman went ballistic. He could not stand the fact that this Jew would not bow to him. And so he wants him dead, but in his blood lust, he, he wants more than blood for Mordecai. He wants every Jewish person, any person in the entire Persian empire, slaughtered. He dreams of a bloodbath, a massacre, where the entire Jewish community and every promise, a province is annihilated. And so he goes to the king and he buys the king off. He says, king, now he's the number two guy in the land, so he is immensely wealthy. And he says to the king, hey, king, I've got a plan, and this is a good plan for you. I'm going to give you thousands of tons of my silver, 
put it in your treasury if you will sanction the death of every Jew in this entire empire. And the king says, deal, where do I sign? And so they sign the deal, they roll the dice and land on March 7th of of the following year, 11 months away. And they write it down and they send the posters, if you will, to every province. On this day, it is every Jew is free game. If you kill them, you get to have everything they own. Nice incentive. But when Mordecai, the older cus, uh, cousin of Esther, when he reads it, he, he goes into a panic. He immediately begins an intense time of prayer. And he goes to Esther. Says, Esther, you gotta, you gotta do something. You gotta stop this. This is, this is crazy. Our, our entire nation of people is gonna be slaughtered. And Esther's like, no, I'm sorry, no way, I, no can do. You know it is illegal to enter the presence of the king without invitation. And he hasn't invited me in a month. Maybe he's forgotten about me. Maybe I've lost favor with him. Maybe there's someone he likes more. Maybe he's too busy with politics and money and whatever. But I have not been invited into his presence for 30 days. And if I go uninvited, the penalty is death. You're asking me to give up my own life. And then Malachi sends her this message. Malachi sent Esther this message. Don't don't think that just because you live in the king's house and you got nice clothes and dish TV and good king food, that you're the one Jew who will get out of this alive. I mean, if you persist in staying silent at a time like this, Helping to, hey, these are God's people, so God's gonna deliver. God's gonna save, but help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from someplace else. But, but you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made queen, an orphan girl from nowhere with no parents, got nothing, a nobody. Maybe you were made queen for just such a time as this couple of truths jump out at me from this part of the story. One, don't ever miscalculate the huge significance of the place where God has placed you, of the family where God has placed you, as the friendships in which God has placed you, as the workplace where God has placed you, as the school where God has placed you. You are in that place, that school, that workplace, that neighborhood, that family, those friendships for the great purposes of God. 38 years ago, almost 39 years ago, now Deb and I were seated together having supper at what was at that time the Holiday Inn in South Beloit. This church had invited us to come and be the pastor here. Little bitty church. I'd never heard of Beloit, Wisconsin. But we decided this is where God was bringing us. So we left southern Indiana, came here, and I felt from the beginning, good times, hard times, that I was a good fit, that I belonged in this church. And I believe that God has arranged and orchestrated and maneuvered in your life to bring you here, even if this is the first time you are here because God wants you here This is your church. You belong here because God never underestimate, never miscalculate the huge significance of where God has placed you. And it's not just this church. It is where you work and the neighborhood in which you live and your circle of friends and your family. 
It's one of the reasons that we have those big orange banners out in the hallway with those prayer stickers all over them. The prayer stickers, we've written the names of our friends and our family members, our coworkers, that we would love to see come to the saving love of Jesus. And so we're praying for them every day. We believe that God has placed us in their lives. And, and, and more than that, it's not just for a time of prayer. It's for what we do because scripture says, Ephesians 2.10, that we are the masterpiece of God. You're a masterpiece. I'm a masterpiece. He has created us in Christ Jesus, in our relationship with Christ Jesus, to do great things he's prepared in advance for us to do. In fact, um, Esther sends back a message to Mordecai and says, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm convicted by what you've said. I'm committed to do what you've suggested. I've made my decision, but I can't do this alone. You've got to pray for me in this fourth episode. I've never seen Esther look more like Jesus. You've got to pray for me. For th- you get every Jewish person you can find and pray for me for three days. I'm praying. I need God's help. I need his hand on my life. Pray for me. She starts to point in the way she thinks, in the way she feels toward the coming Jesus because the number three is a big deal number in the Bible. How many days was Jesus in the tomb? Three days. Pray for me for three days. And here's the, the deal. The second thing I learned at this point in the story, in this episode, is that this is your time. I'm not talking about her time. I'm talking about you personally. I'm talking to you. God has you here. Somebody's here to hear this. This is your time. So don't be afraid. It's time for you to make your move. Do it with prayer. But trust in God. This is your time. I don't know what you've been dreaming about. I don't know what you've been wanting. I don't know what you've been hoping for. I don't know. Here's what I know. This is your time. Don't back off. Don't back out. Don't give up. Don't give in. This is your time. This is your time to step out in faith. I don't know who I'm talking to, but somebody needs to know this is your time to trust in God. This is your time, your time, your destiny, your time for greatness. You're no longer at the back of the line. God is putting you at the front of the line. This is your time to get that job. This is your time to get that promotion. This is your time. To see this relationship grow. This, this is your time. I want you leaving here with that truth reverberating in your heart. Saying to yourself, this is my time. I won't quit. I won't back off. I'll trust God. This is my time. This is my destiny. God has created me for this. Every moment of my life has led up to this moment. This is my time. Which leads us to episode four. She, Esther is becoming so much like Jesus. I'm calling the fourth episode the passion of the Christ. When she appeals for prayer, when she says she's going to pray, it reminds me of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, face to the ground, pulling out grass by the roots. Scripture says, and then, oh, I'm sorry. This is what Esther says, then I'll get to Jesus. She says, and then though it's against the law, Esther speaking, and then though it is against the law, I will go see the king uninvited at the risk of my own life. If I must die, I must die. Now here's the Jesus part. She asked for prayer. Then Jesus bowed his face to the ground and prayed, Father, 
If it is possible, let this suffering be taken from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. If I must die, I must die. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to pay for Dave Clark's sins. I don't want to be made the sin of everyone in Central Christian Church. I don't want to be their substitute. I don't want to take their place on the cross. I don't want to absorb in myself their punishment, do them for their sin. I don't want to be separated from you. I don't want to bear all your anger, all your condemnation, all your judgment, but not what I want, God, but what you want. If I must die, I must die. And he did in your place, in my place, as our substitute for our sin, that we might be made right with God. And so she makes the death walk. At least that's the way she thought about it, wouldn't you? She, can you imagine the walk from the harem to the throne room? Every step is potentially a step closer to her death. Every step. And she steps into the throne room. The guards could have killed her in an instant. The king raises his scepter. She reaches out and touches it and finds favor in the eyes of the king. Scripture says... She found favor in his eyes. It was illegal. It was against the law. It was unprecedented. But she found favor again. Irrefutable evidence of the fingerprints of God's favor on her life. And the king says, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I'll give it to you, whatever you want, even if it is for half of of the empire. And she says, I'd like for you to come to my royal dining quarters for dinner. Just me, you, and Haman, just the three of us. King says, okay, we'll be there. And so they they go. And Haman, he thinks he's like hot stuff, babe. Queen wants me for dinner, all good. The three of them go. And, uh, you know, they got a glass of wine in their hands and Esther takes a drink and the king takes a drink and the king says, so, Esther, I know you wanted this here for more than dinner. What, what is your request? And Esther says this. If I found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. Remember earlier, the couplet, two descriptives at once, making her the most beautiful? This is three. This is a triplet. Three Hebrew words make this is the worst. This will be a bloodbath. But also it points to Jesus who said that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Annihilation, extermination, murder. We will be slaughtered. And the king is like, who is responsible for this? She sets down her wine glass and she points at Haman. And the king, man, he just slams his glass on the table. Wine goes everywhere. Picks his wine goblet up, fires it across the room. He storms out of the room into the palace garden to, you know, to chill, to to, to count to 10, to take a deep breath. And, and, And Haman, he jumped up too. He He knows... Now that Esther is a Jew, 
And he's arranged his own execution. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. And the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. And then um, Haman in a panic, from the Hebrew we get the uh, inference that he jumps up and he's intending to go to the couch she's reclining on and kneel down and beg her for mercy. But on the way, evidently he trips and falls on her couch, falls on her. And as he puts his hands against her arms to push himself up, the king comes in. In despair, Haman fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining just as the king returned. The king declared, get your hands off my wife, my boo. The king declared, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace? Within an hour, he is, Haman is executed. Esther, under the intense and gloriously good favor of God, everything Haman owns comes into her possession. She's given all his wealth. I haven't had time to tell you the whole story, but Mordecai takes Haman's place at the king's right hand. Who can do this? Only God can do this for those who surrender their lives <laughs> under his hand for his favor. And so here's what I want you to know. If God doesn't show himself, his hiddenness, if God feels like he's not there and he's not doing something, if God doesn't show himself, he is still leaving fingerprints of his favor all over your life. And you might not see it till a month later. You might not know it till a year later, but it is so, so important to look back on your life and begin to identify with thanksgiving every time God has arranged and maneuvered and orchestrated and showed you his favor beyond measure. Thanks so much for joining us. Just a reminder to stay connected with us throughout the week at centralwire.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for being with us and have a great week.